South American soccer an in-depth look at the action across the whole continent, providing you with a tactical, analytical and critical view supported by Pinnacle's unrivaled odds. This is South American Soccer Insights. We're down to the final eight now in both the Libertadores and the Sudamericana. So we take a look back at the last 16 ties before looking ahead to those quarterfinals. And with the transfer market in full flow, we look at some of the big moves involving South Americans so far during the window. As ever, I'm joined by, firstly, Simon Edwards. Yeah, happy to be here. Uh, happy to talk some more Libertadores, Sudamericana, a few transfers. Sounds good. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. Yeah, plenty to get through. And as ever, Tom Robinson also joins us. Yeah, uh, I'm ready. As things are heating up over here in the UK for the uh, the, the fever pitch atmosphere that's that's replicated in the Libertadores quarterfinals. <laughs> so I'm feeling I'm feeling in the zone already. Good to hear. Good to hear. Well, we'll get straight in because we do have a lot to get through, um, and we'll begin there with the Libertadores because we are now down to the quarterfinals. Um, and as we've been going through this year's Libertadores, it's been the recurring theme, the regular favourites, really, the Brazilians still very much dominant. And we see that once again when we look at the quarterfinal lineup, a lineup made up exclusively of just the Brazilian sides and then three Argentinian sides. Um, Tom, I'll start with you because we've been discussing this throughout the tournament. And really, when you look at that quarterfinal lineup, I think once again, we're looking at the two standout teams and certainly the two big scorers the, the two sides that swept through the last 16 back-to-back winners Palmeiras and Flamengo one of the other teams that have been very close or champions within the last few years are we still looking at that after devastating round of 16 as they're still the two sides to beat yeah I mean just for the margin of those victories and the fact that they've been the, the teams challenging over the last couple of years, it's really hard to look past them. They're both looking in really fine form. I mean, there's an argument to, to say this might even be the, the best Palmeiras side yet. I don't know what you guys think about that, but you know, for a side that's won back to back Libertadores and the fact that they're now seemingly coming out of their shell a little bit more and, and taking opposition on, scoring lots of goals, obviously a 8-0 on aggregate victory over Cerro Porteño. Ronnie looking spectacular in both games with some really, really eye-catching goals. Um, so I think certainly Palmeiras are living up to their title as favourites. And um, and yeah, maybe you could argue that they've not really been challenged yet. And I think this game against Atletico Mineiro in the quarterfinals is going to be a proper proper challenge for them and it's going to be really interesting to see if we see the old practical um, Palmeiras side that really just go for the clean sheet and see if they can nick the win or whether they keep up this freewheeling attack that we've come to expect from them in this year's Libertadores and then obviously Flamengo also looking really good but also coming up against a, a very obdurate Corinthian side who, who edged past Boca in the last round. So as much as they're really, really big favourites here, in um, in my eyes at least anyway, maybe not so much um, when it comes to the odds, which we can, we can touch on, I'm sure, in a moment. Um, but um, yeah, certainly I think this is, this is the big challenge. If they can get past this, um, both Flamengo and Palmeiras, you'd, you'd be hard push to look at anything other than them meeting in the final. Yeah, certainly. You look at Palmeiras, the amount of goals they scored in the group phase, then to follow that up with a devastating performance against Cerro Porteño. Um, they still look formidable in this year's tournament. Simon, as Tom mentioned there, they've got that quarterfinal coming up against another one of the Brazilian teams, Atletico Mineiro. Right at the start of the tournament, Mineiro were perhaps the third team that you looked at as potential favourites, but they've been a little bit underwhelming so far in the tournament. They weren't blowing teams away in the group phase. They snuck through against Emelec in the round of 16. How are you viewing that quarterfinal between Atletico Mineiro and Palmeiras? Yeah, I think I think Mineiro right now are a team of kind of moments. I think Hulk in the tap obviously makes a huge difference in kind of these key moments. I don't think they're a team that controls games in the same way as we see Palmeiras. You know, Palmeiras, for me, there's some similarities and, and some quite big differences between the two, I think. Um, for me, um, Palmeiras always look in control. They'll take, they'll take the lead early. They'll look to assert themselves and get the lead early. 
and then they'll let the other team kind of throw some things at them and then they'll finish it off with a couple late on often. So I think I think they're both sides that kind of focus on decisive moments, but I see Palmeiras as a team that controls the game better than Minero right now. Um, and again, we're, we're talking about the Libertadores, but you know, if you look at it, Minero in second place in the Brasileirão and Palmeiras are in first place. So, you know, in terms of domestic form, um, and I think there is sometimes quite a big disparity between the domestic form and the Libertadores form, uh, as we'll come on to Flamengo uh, on that regard as well. But I think uh, Minero definitely have match winners, but I think Palmeiras are better placed to control a game, have more strength in depth. They have a lot of good quality coming off the bench, which is something. I don't think Minero quite have. So I think the experience Palmeiras have in this competition as well is going to be important. Uh, Pinnacle have Minero at 2.18, uh, Palmeiras at 3.66, uh, with the draw at 3.10. So it's, uh, it's quite interesting to see that. But for me, I think Palmeiras in this competition have a combination of the, the professionalism, the organization, the game management, and then also we've seen a lot of quality and they can really turn things up a notch when, when they need to. You know, I think so far they've managed games and got through games and, and look very comfortable. Um, but they kind of up the intensity, up the attacking pressure and then ease off for spells and then turn it back on again. I think that's why Palmeiras have been so successful in this competition and why I think, particularly over two legs, I think they'll, they'll be, get the better of Minero. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly been impressive again. They've managed to keep a lot of the key players as well from from previous Libertadores victories. Going into last year's final, of course, a lot of the talk was it's so difficult to win back-to-back Libertadores titles. Hadn't been done since Boca right the way back in 2001. Um, Tom, how impressive do you think it would be if they were able to go on and do it three times in a row? Yeah, it would be absolutely incredible. For, for so long, we talked about this tournament as one that was always throwing up different winners, different finalists, and then just a, you know, seemingly out of nowhere, just then win it three times in the in a row would just be such an impressive feat. I think on on some respects, maybe not as much credit was given to them after the last two, but I think you really can't, you know, look past them as as one of the modern great teams if they win this Libertadores for a third time in the in the row. And it's interesting what you're saying there about how they have kept their side pretty settled. I mean, obviously, um, we, we're going to have see Jose Lopez come into the side and and I think it'll be interesting to, to see how he can contribute. But as you said, you know, there's not been loads of changes. Whereas when we look at some of the other teams like Flamengo, they've had big signings like Arturo Vidal, Everton coming back in. Um, Corinthians as well have, have seen um, Yuri Alberto come in, Matias Vital, a um, couple of the guys from Shakhtar as well. You know they've they've reinforced quite strongly. Whereas Palmeiras have have more or less kept the same side. I mean, as as I mentioned before, Ronnie has been brilliant and he's still one of the best players in the in the continent. Uh, Rafael Vega, I think, has has really stepped up and been more of a decisive figure for this side. Um, and um, and it's, it's going to be interesting to see if the sides that have reinforced more over the, um, well, the South American winter break, if they're going to be the ones that benefit or if it's that tried and tested um, Palmeiras side that, that knows what it's doing, knows each other, that is, is going to take that and, and prevail. Um, so it's, yeah, it, it's going to be really fascinating. As Simon mentioned, those, those odds have, Minedo as favourites for the home leg, which maybe might be a surprise. But the key thing is obviously the fact it's over two legs and and yeah, it's it's going to be hard to look past Palmeiras. Whereas um, I think that potentially Corinthians um, might might be a little bit of a, a, a potential obstacle for Flamengo because as we saw against Boca, two nil-nil draws, um, some strong performances from Casio. Um, they're they're going to be a real clash of styles against Flamengo, who obviously like to come forward and score. And and Pinnacle has those as Corinthians two uh, point um, eight eight to win the um, the the game there, um, and Flamengo is two point six six zero to win the game. So that one could really go either way in the first leg. Again, you'd have to look at Flamengo as maybe the the favourites there, but um, um, again. It's going to be really, really fascinating because 
if one of these size Corinthians, Atletico Mineiro, who would start as maybe slight underdogs in this, if they can get past one of these big boys, then they've got a golden opportunity as well. I mean, Peter, how do you see that Flamengo-Atletico Mineiro game, uh, Flamengo-Corinthians game um, going ahead? Yeah, I mean, I think like you said, you'd have to consider Flamengo favourites given, as we're talking about, performances in the round of 16. Yes, they were always going to be heavy favourites against Tolima, but the nature in which they went about going through in that game and the fact that over the last few years, they've really had that experience of being able to go through to the latter stages, if not winning it, getting to the final, regular semi-finals. So they've been there. Corinthians, as you said, against Boca, they had to show maybe a side of their game that maybe we haven't seen from the other sides because they've had things their own way so much. Corinthians had to ride their luck a little bit at times. Obviously, when you look back at certainly Benedetto's penalty miss in the last 16, holding on to that goalless draw and then taking Boca out on penalties. Um, But it does set it up to be quite an intriguing tie for that reason, as you say, because of the fact that you've got one team that have been scoring plenty of goals. We know a lot about them because of what they've been doing in Libertadores year on year against this Corinthians side that come with you know, a vast amount of, of history in the competition, maybe haven't been in the latter stages in recent years, but certainly have shown a resilience there against Boca that could be a potential stumbling block for a number of teams. Um, Simon, with reference to Flamengo, obviously, um, when I was talking about the last 16, the team that they thrashed uh, there was Tolima, um, the Colombian side that made it through to the last 16. We talked about that last time, the fact that it was a, a success really for Colombian football to have a team back at that stage of the Libertadores. Um, but obviously, the, the scoreline would suggest it was just a step too far. How did you assess that tie in reference to maybe Flamengo's potential to go on and, and lift the Libertadores again? Sure. Like, yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that win for Flamengo makes them or pushes them ahead of other contenders in terms of being favourites. Um, an incredible result, a huge result against the Tolima side that's been good in the Libertadores and very good in the league. Um, the uh, a Tolima that beat Minero away in Brazil, which was another huge result for them. I just think it was a Tolima side that had just um, come to the end of a really tough period. They were playing the Colombian League final against Atletico Nacional. They were two goals behind in the first leg. They came back to, to score two in the first half. They had a penalty. They missed the penalty. And then the penalty taker went lunging in on the goalkeeper and got a straight red. And they ended up playing the last half with, uh, with 10 men. They conceded in the 93rd minute. And then a few days later, they were off to Rio de Janeiro to face a, an incredibly strong Flamengo side. So I think mentally, physically, that Tolima side was was vulnerable. And I think once they conceded a few, you know, everything fell apart. Um, but uh, so I think, you know, in regards to Tolima, in regards to that particular game, I think there were certain circumstances that made, you know, a, a bad start for Tolima was gonna, always going to leave them in a difficult position. And Flamengo turned on the style, showed all of the quality they have, which is incredible quality. Um, if I'm to make the case... For Flamengo not progressing, uh, you know, you look to the league, they're down in seventh, they've conceded a goal a game. They lost against Corinthians just over a week ago, 1-0. So I think, and we saw again, even the first leg against Tolima, it was a 1-0 win for Flamengo, but it was very tight. I think once Flamengo uh, get the lead, once Flamengo are into their rhythm, they're really, really difficult to stop. But I think it's possible to prevent them kind of getting up and running. And, you know, we've seen Corinthians overcome Boca in a game where they were up against it. They were hanging on. They were really struggling at times to kind of grab hold of the game. Um, now, I think they'll have to be a little bit better to be able to do that against Flamengo. But I think that they've shown that they can not play very well and still get the result they need. So I think this Flamengo right now, looking at their league form, um, looking at a couple of games here and there, there's some vulnerabilities if things don't go their way. Uh, which will give Corinthians confidence. You know, Corinthians are sitting way above them in the league in third, uh, Flamengo down in seventh. And again, as I say, the Libertadores, once teams get to this stage, is the priority and, and, and things change, of course. But I think there's reason to believe that, in my own opinion, an, an inferior Corinthian side 
over two legs could sneak a result. If there's goals in this game, it will be a Flamingo win. If it's, you know, if there's three or four goals over the two legs, you know, Flamingo will be going through. But if Corinthians can keep it tight, then I think they'll have a decent chance. And they'll also, they'll know Flamingo better than an Ecuadorian side or a Colombian side. They'll be used to the qualities they have. So I think they may be well, well set up to make it difficult for Flamengo. Yeah, and they've already shown that they, they're more than capable of making things difficult, as Boca can, can testify to. Just before we move on to the other two quarterfinals, Tom, on the subject of Flamengo, you mentioned before the players they've brought in. They had the injury to Bruno Enrique as well, who's been a really key player for them over the last few years. Um, how do you see the players they brought in during this window being able to impact on the team? Do you think this, they could be the players that push them and, and actually improve them? Or, or do you think it's asking a lot for these players to come in at this stage of the tournament and really have a big impact? I mean, in theory, they should be massively strengthening the side. Um, obviously, Everton with his pace, we've seen him do wonderful things at Gremio in the past. Um, maybe hasn't quite worked out in Europe as we'd expect, but you know he's going to be a like-for-like replacement for Bruno Enrique. Um, so pacey and you know going to give them that width and that direct threat you know they've got the the clever little playmakers like Dere Asquieta um obviously Gabby Goal can contribute both in assists and and goals and and Pedro showing that you know with those four goals against Tolima that he's he's going to be a threat up front um what I'm more interested to see is how um Arturo Vidal fits in I think he comes with maybe a higher profile, albeit with his star on the wane. Um, and obviously he's a big personality. We've seen him rub people up the wrong way. I think that's more of a, a, a transfer that could go either way. I mean, if we get a peak Arturo Vidal with more time on the ball, maybe less dis- defensive responsibilities, he's got that personality that can definitely impact things and, and be a big presence. But you kind of think, okay, where, where are you really fitting him into this side? You know, Everton Ribeiro, Deris Queta, you know, they're the kind of attacking midfielders that you're going to build build it around with, you know, the likes of Thiago Maia and, and other more defensive-minded midfielders sort of giving them the platform to go forward. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a good headache to have, especially with the young players coming through. You know, we saw Mateus France uh, getting that that first Libertadores goal and he looks a great talent. Um, you know, players like Lazaro, Joel Gomez, Matthew Zinho, they're all, you know, good players. So I, th- I think it's, it's a good headache to have, but I think Vidal, although his, his potential input could be higher, is the one that could go either way, whereas Everton feels a, a pretty like-for-like replacement. So that's going to be another fascinating side story to go with that. You know, they've already got big names like David Luiz in there as well. So um, it's it's definitely looking like Flamengo are throwing everything at it. And um, yeah, it's, it's going to be such an interesting clash of styles. And I, I'm still not sure about Corinthians. I, I, I share Simon's views that they're a side that if they can keep it tight, they're, they're certainly capable of edging out and, and not making errors, which is obviously key at this um, level. But, you know, that that performance against Boca, you could read it two ways. Is it a show of solidarity and solidity against a tough opposition? Or is it a bit of an underwhelming, overly defensive approach against a side that was, you know, okay, it's a good side, but it's a side that they could come out and, and beat um, playing rather than having to take it to penalties. And, you know, fine margins of a, any one of a, a one of two Benedetto penalties could have really been curtains for them. So um, Corinthians, I think it all depends on how they, how they approach the game, whether it's, you know, defensive football, can be proactive. It doesn't have to be reactive. So it's it, it's going to be interesting to see what type of defence-minded performance they, they show. But um, yeah, two huge, huge games. Yeah, two huge games, two all-Brazilian quarterfinals. Um, we'll move on to another one of those games, which will be from the same half of the draw as Palmeiras against Atletico Mineiro. It involves the other Brazilian club that is still there, Atletico Paranaense. And they're up against... Estudiantes, who were the only team to be able to knock out a Brazilian t- side after beating Fortaleza in the round of 16. 
Um, Simon Padanense, we, we talked about a lot last year as they run in the Sudamericana. They've come through into the Libertadores, managed to beat uh, Libertad in the previous round to reach this stage of the Libertadores. And now they come up against an Estudiantes side that, as we talked about earlier in the tournament, can be a very tricky opponent. They came through for Delesa in the end during that second leg at home. Um, they've lost a couple of key players in the past few weeks, which perhaps could could weaken Estudiantes a little bit. But how do you foresee that quarterfinal as, as one which perhaps has got two sides that we're not looking at as potential winners of the Libertadores, but maybe a side that when you look at the draw, certainly one of them is going to be there in the semifinals. Yeah, I mean, you, you guys can fill me in more on Estudiantes. Um, it'd be interesting to see what you think on those guys. But in terms of the Brazilians, yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a close one against Libertad. They scored in the final minute. Um, I think this Paranaense is a fairly reactive side. Um, you know, Teran's in behind the striker uh, with some, some wingers, dynamic wingers, a couple of city midfielders. I think they're a team that's pretty solid, pretty organised, um, quite effective on the counter-attack. Um, again, not a side I, I imagine will, will dominate possession, but you can tell me if I'm wrong, but Estudiantes don't seem that particular, that kind of side either, are looking for kind of lots and lots of short passes. So it'll be quite an interesting game, I think, quite potentially quite an open one um, with teams looking to kind of counter, counter-attack each other. Um, but yeah, so for Paranaense, again, I, I don't think it's, as you say, not one of the top teams in the tournament, but, but they've done enough so far. They've been effective in their work without being particularly impressive or exciting. So uh, yeah, as you say, both teams will be delighted with the draw um, and a chance to get through to a, to a semi-final. So I think both will back themselves. I think the home leg is going to be key. Um, it'll be very interesting to see what happens. But you guys let me know from an Estudiantes perspective how confident uh, the Argentines will be feeling. Yeah, well, I mean, Tom, when we talk about Estudiantes, it, it's an interesting team to, to discuss because when we were talking about them at the, the start of the year, in the first half of the year, and they, they went through the group phase in, in pretty impressive fashion. And at the same time, they were also performing very well in Argentina's domestic competition in the Copa part of that season. Ended up going out in there on penalties in the knockout phase. Um, however, what we're seeing now from Estudiantes is a side that are also struggling domestically in the league part of Argentina's season. They've started poorly there. The one saving grace really in the recent weeks is that win against Fortaleza to take them here into the quarterfinals. So how do you assess them going into this big game against Atletico Paranaense, um, given that maybe, certainly on paper, they don't look as strong as they did even just a few months ago? Yeah, I'd agree that they're probably not quite as strong, but I think now that we're in the real business end of the Libertadores, then that league form and that league, those league games is is going to be less and less important for them as they put all their eggs in the Libertadores basket. So I'd always take the league form with a pinch of salt when it comes to a side like Estudiantes that doesn't have the strength and depth of a, of one of the bigger Argentinian clubs, perhaps. But yeah, as we've said, they're, they're a great side in transition. They're very good on their set pieces. They've got, you know, some hulking defenders there that can, that can contribute with goals as well. I do, do worry that maybe um, the loss of Del Prete is, is just, taking a, a certain weapon out of their arm, armory and they're very much relying on Baselli, who's not been as effective in the Libertadores as he has been in the league. Um, but I think that, I think they're going to, like Simon said, fancy themselves um, to, to get through in terms of if you're going to come up against a Brazilian side, this is the one that you would pick. Having said that, I think that Atletico Badanaense are a side that are often underestimated, um, especially by myself in the in the past couple of years, and and they always seem to find a way of of, of getting through. They've added Fernandinho to their squad, which is going to be a huge um, presence there in midfield. Someone with bags and bags of experience who can really help this side that's that's sort of renovating itself. Um, more than we've seen in, in previous years. You know, lots of young players in that team now. Vitor Roque, the the latest star who who really, really impressed me in the last two legs against Libertad. Obviously scoring within about six minutes for his first Libertadores uh, goal. But there were flashes as well in the second leg where he, he really looked fearless and, you know, 
strong, pacey, not afraid to have a crack from range. I, I really think that Vito Roque could be someone who we're talking a, a lot more about in, in years to come. And and even, you know, players like Romulo coming off the bench to, to get that all-important goal as well. Abner, a really good fullback as well. So there's, there's a, a younger trend to this Atletico team. They've got a bit more dynamism with the likes of Canobio in there. Some They've brought in a couple of Colombians as well. Vito Bueno's been good for um, Santos in the past. So I think there's a bit more about this Atletico side than, than there has been in the last couple of years. And they're going to be looking at Estudiantes, uh, not at the peak of their powers and, and, and fancying their chances too. So I don't know whether it's necessarily going to be the most um, aesthetically pleasing game to watch. But um, I do think it's it's one that could go either way, and 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 the fact that both te- teams will probably view themselves as the favourites is 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 only going to be a good thing for this for the spectacle. Uh, Pinnacle has Atletico Panense to win the first leg um, at home as as the as the favourites there at um, two point one zero zero, and Estudiantes three point eight five zero to win and three point one two on a draw. I certainly think uh, Estudiantes would, would take a draw from the first leg and then and then back themselves to do something at home there in the second leg. Um, but um, yeah, certainly Pinnacle has Atletico f- uh, favourites for the first leg. But yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be an interesting one and, and two sides that definitely wouldn't have envisaged themselves in a, in a semi-final of Libertadores um, at the start of the tournament. So um, yeah, any, anything after this is gonna, just going to be a bonus really. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the same can be said, I guess, of, of the final quarterfinal, which is the all-Argentinian one. Both teams coming through all-Argentinian round of 16s. Vélez Sarsfield knocking out River Plate in, in somewhat controversial fashion um, because of a disallowed goal late in that second leg. So just the one goal in the first leg was enough for Vélez to knock out River, who were certainly favourites in that one. And then Tejeres, who knocked out Colón in the other all-Argentinian round of 16. So it's a very uh, intriguing matchup in the quarterfinals. Both of those teams, I think, would be in that same bracket as you just mentioned there as being sides that look at that as a very winnable quarterfinal to take them into a semi-final berth, which I don't think either would have necessarily expected at the start of the tournament, certainly not to Gerdes anyway. Um, but Simon, we've, we've seen those two teams come through uh, quarterfinals. Tejeres in the end were a, a lot more comfortable against Colón than maybe anticipated. Um, Velez, as probably expected, really had to dig in against uh, River in that second leg. But how do you assess those two teams uh, going forward and, and who do you fancy to get through into the semifinals? Yeah, it, it's an interesting one. You know, I think Velez, I, I quite like Velez. I like, I like their attacking partnership of uh, Edwin Blato no? uh, with Walter Bo, which is quite a, a kind of a fun, kind of quite physical partnership up top with the with lots of pace out wide it's quite fun so I think they're quite an effective team Velez you guys know these better than me I'll, I'll give you I'll give you the ball back in a second and you can run with it for me I think um, Velez is an interesting one um, just because of I think there's some experience there in attack they've got some good young players as well deep in the midfield um, lots of invention and pace out wide so I think they're quite an effective team again not the most complicated, stylish of sides, but quite an effective side. Uh, Pinnacle has them at 1.892 to win. Uh, they have Tajeres at 4.170. So Pinnacle's quite clear where they think. Uh, Tom, do you agree with Pinnacle? I'm not sure I'd say that Velez are the, the obvious um, favourites. I mean, I think I, I would fancy them to win. I think they've got a bit more about them. I mean, if you look at the league form, they're both doing as badly as each other. 25th and 26th, I think, at the the time of recording, um, or certainly when I last checked. Um, and it, another interesting aspect to this game is obviously Alexander Medina going to his former club, Tajeres, um, and that could be a real um, interesting side story there as well. But no, uh, Velez have got more about them. And I think they've got more match winners in their squad than, than Tajeres. Tajeres have really struggled to, to score goals. They've got players who on their day, if they click, can, can win you the game. Valoges, uh, Girotti, you know, good players going forward. Um, but other than that, they're, they're a solid side um, who, who are, you know, they're not the side they were last year and, and definitely a bit surprised that they beat a quite a 
diminished and uh, dismantled uh, Colon team is probably something to to be said for for how they got through in the last game. But um, Velez, while the temptation is that to focus on what went wrong for River in the in the last game, I think we can we can also point to just how good. Velez were in their in their first leg against River. They only won one nil, um, but they should have and could have, um, you know, scored uh, a, a lot more goals in that first leg to really give themselves a a, a better scoreline. Um, and they, and they've they've been good in the transfer market as well. You know, uh, Godin and Burian, two old, experienced Uruguayans coming in. Walter Bau, as um, Simon mentioned as well adding to that physical bustling presence they've got with Jansen and Prato up front. And then for lovers of youth football, there aren't many better places to, to go to than, than, than Velez right now. I mean, um, Luca Orejano is is the real creative element, element in the team. He really makes them tick and he's a fantastic player to watch and, and certainly destined for more. Maxi Perone, you know, plays with in his slippers at the at the base of midfield a really really elegant player who's who's gonna again someone who's destined for bigger things um but then there's there's all kinds of other young players Valentin Gomez at the back uh Abel Osorio again fits in with that bustling physical presence up front Castro Fernandez um you know even someone like uh Garajalde who's who I He's quietly been going about his business, but he's made himself a really important player in this team. There's there's all kinds of young players, so um, really, really worth watching Velas for that. And and perhaps you know that inexperience could could count against them. But I think the fact they've got those those seasoned professionals in there means that that Velas over two legs again, you you fancy them to to get through. But um, whether either side can can challenge whoever they meet in the semi-finals is a, is another question. Yeah, I suppose they'll cross that bridge when they come to it. It's certainly going to be a, a difficult one for whoever gets through. But I think I would probably go with you on that in terms of just favouring Belez. I think Medina as well, as you mentioned, could be a big factor given that the last time really Tejeda's were at their best was under Medina. A lot of the players are still there as well. And in a lot, of, a lot of ways, they still try and implement the same kind of things that Medina was trying to do when he was there. So he should know that team pretty well and be able to set Velez up, who, as you say, were outstanding against River, even if their league form hasn't been particularly good. And you just get a feel is when the stakes are really there, when it's a really big big game, like it was against River in both legs, Velez um, produced a performance which was well beyond what we've seen domestically over the last few months. So it'll be an interesting quarterfinal. All of those quarterfinals will be coming up in the first week of August, the, uh, the, the first legs, the return legs a week later. And the same time frame, of course, for the Sudamericana as we head into that competition, um, which has to be said is, is a bit more of a diverse field. When we look at the Libertadores, it's just made up of five Brazilians, three Argentinians, which some people may grumble at. Certainly the Sudamericana still presents us with a, with a far more varied field and, and teams that come almost from nowhere to, to reach this stage of the tournament, drop off maybe next year. Um, but we see this recycling of teams that get through into the latter stages. A few familiar faces uh, and a few new ones. Um, Simon, we'll, we'll start with, with the first quarterfinal there, which is perhaps a good example of a familiar face and, and a somewhat surprising one, where Deportivo Táchira are going to take on Independiente del Valle. Um, Táchira knocking out Santos in the round of 16, certainly one of the big surprises from the tournament in terms of the stature of the clubs. Um, how do you see that quarterfinal playing out? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting game for lots of reasons. Obviously, you know, we're very familiar with Independiente del Valle. They've got to Libertadores finals, Sudamericana champions, U20 Libertadores champions, an incredible project. Uh, the fact that we see them in a Sudamericana quarterfinal and we, we kind of think it's been a bad year for them um, shows how far they've come as a club that they're not in the Libertadores knockout rounds rather than the Sudamericana. So very impressive, um, very impressive side uh, in terms of the project. Uh, still got a lot of good quality, perhaps not their finest year, but there's always players coming through. That's going to be a really interesting one. And Dachida as well, I think uh, a side that's done very incredibly well, uh, knocking out uh, Santos. 
They've got a young player, Jerson Chacon, I think is really, really interesting. A young right winger, very highly rated. Got a good side. Uh, Corwin in, in the attacking midfielder is, is a really good player as well. So um, I'm pleased to see these two teams in this kind of important South American uh, knockout rounds because I think it's reflective of the progress Venezuelan football is making, which is, is great to see. And it's also reflective of the continued success of the the IDV project, which has you know influence from Spain, as you know, basically taking the really strong raw ingredients we see in Ecuador and trying to mould them into a very professional setup and get the best from the players they have. So I think uh, there's reason for us to be pleased that both of these sides are doing well uh, for what they represent in South America as well. Yeah, Tom. I mean, on Independiente del Valle, we've we've spoken about them a lot since the start of this podcast, and and even before that, they were really punching above their weight in many regards in, in South American football. Here they are again in the latter stages of this tournament, which they obviously won just a few years ago. They got through against Lanús um, in the round of 16 after a last-minute winner at home when Lanús came quite clearly just to try and get a draw, really, and almost managed it. And then the second leg ended goalless, which was enough for Independiente del Valle. Lanús certainly aren't the team that we saw one year ago, two years ago, when they were getting through themselves to the latter stages of both the Sudamericana and the Libertadores before that. So how much can you read into that win or the narrow win against Lanús? Do you think it was a, a win which states some credentials for Independiente del Valle to potentially go on and win this t- competition again? Or are you still looking at them as, as something of a fragile team? Yeah, potentially. I, I don't think that that result against Lanús um, plus their performances in the in the group stage fill me with confidence that they're necessarily going to go on and, and win this tournament. Uh, certainly, I think they're they're going to be one of the protagonists here. And even though the the odds of their them being two point two one to win away in Tatra to Tatra is three point three six would suggest that, that they are going to be favourites in both these legs. I think they might struggle in the first leg and then bring it home in the, in the second leg. They they strike me as a team that are kind of in between cycles at the moment. I think they're that young side that um, won uh, or did very well in the under-20 Libertadores, um, they're not maybe quite at their level where they can really... Um, boss games and and, and dominate the, the the team just yet and they've kind of got you know the likes of Sornosa and um veterans who are who, who are still good at this level but maybe not at their most dynamic so i feel like independent de lavage this isn't the best version of them we've seen and i think we're going to see better versions of them in the coming seasons but um they're, st- they're still you know going to be up there as, as one of the the teams to watch. I, I just think that there's stronger teams in the tournament. You know, your likes of Sao Paulo. Um, I think both Melga and Inter, whoever wins that is going to be right up there with the favourites as well. Melga, a team who've really, really impressed me with with what they're doing. Um, obviously, Cuesta scoring loads of goals. Paulo Reina, really fantastic young player as well. Um, and it's not too often that we see Peruvian sides really contributing at this late stage in the tournament. So, um, yeah, I, I think IDV, you'd put them in the maybe top three or four to win this, but I, I wouldn't have them as as favourites, to uh, obvious favourites to go on and, and win the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned there who they're going to play if they get through that quarterfinal in, in the semis, which will be the winner of that very interesting quarterfinal matchup between Melgar and Internacional. Um, absolutely agree with you in terms of how impressed impressive Melgar have been in the group stage when you consider the Racing with the, with the big favourites really to come through from that group and Melgar when they were Racing were unbeaten for a long period going into that game they suffered their first defeat deservedly so against Melgar and then Melgar able to come from behind in that group to take the spot in the qualification they came through against Deportivo Cali in the round of 16 and then they come up against now an Internacional side that beat a Colo Colo side who in the Libertadores group phase looked pretty dangerous um, they could might consider themselves a little bit unfortunate that they ended up dropping down into the Sudamericana and maybe with a bit of luck, they could have snuck through in the Libertadores themselves. So an impressive win there for Internacional and it's why it sets up that quarterfinal um, as one of the more intriguing and two teams, as Tom said there, that 
could look at that as the winners really have a chance of going all the way. How do you assess uh, Melgaard against Internacional, Simon? It's an interesting one. I think Melgaard doing a great job and it's a huge boost for Peruvian football as a whole. Obviously, the manager is off to say the Colombian job. So uh, I've had a little bit of interest in seeing how well he's been doing. And you know, that's that's it's great for, for him, for Colombia as well. Maybe not so great for Melgar that he'll be leaving, but, you know, appreciate the, the platform. But no, it, it, Melgar is, yeah, really impressive. You know, against Cali, um, they kept it tight in the first leg and then won 2-1 at home. Again, I think there was a s- slight bit of fortune in terms of the, the, taking their chances. You know, they... they Cali let slip a couple of times and, and Melgar came in and, and finished off nicely. But that said, Cali were never really in the game. They, they scored late on and, you know, maybe it looks a little bit closer than it than it really was. Um, so, yeah, no, Melgar, you know, a good organised side. Uh, I think the manager's done a great job getting to them, getting them to where they are right now. Again, to the point where going up against a Brazilian giant, they'll, they'll feel they can give them a decent game. Um, I, I think the first leg is going to be key. If they lose the first leg, going away to Brazil is terrifying <laughs> but if they can um, continue their good home form and get get a, you know one nil lead get something to boost the confidence at home then I think um, they're organized they can hit them on the break uh, I think they'll they'll give it they'll give a good showing you know I, I still think the Brazilians will be favorites but I think Melgar have will have built up some good confidence as you say coming out of a tough group then built in a beating a Colombian side that has been terrible in the Colombian league, but has done well in the Libertadores and weren't, weren't too far from progressing in themselves. So, you know, I think there's lots of positive signs for Melgar. This will be a, a challenge, a step up in terms of quality for them. But I think they've shown enough to indicate that they can, uh, at the very least, compete in this game. And, and a good first round performance will kind of give them the confidence to go away to Brazil and, and back themselves to pull off a surprise, I think. Yeah, and in the other half of the draw, uh, Tom, we see Nacional of Uruguay taking on Guarniense. Um, Nacional proving a, a little too much for Union in the end in their round of 16 tie. But how are you assessing that one in, in the other half? Because obviously we're looking perhaps at Melgar and Internacional as being favourites from one half, but we're also looking at a very competitive other half of the draw. So um, Nacional, one of the historic teams in South America, um, do you think they can continue their their run in this competition. Yeah, I mean, I think they've got a good chance. They've they've started the this Uruguayan season very well, top of the table, um, and yeah, doing doing well there. Whereas going and say struggling a bit in in the Brasileirao, um, and yeah, generally it seems like the the Sudamericana is a is a tournament that Uruguayan teams are are liking a bit more than the Libertadores. You know, they've they've been really poor in Libertadores for, for a while now, whereas, you know, we saw Peñarol go far last year. Um, and it's, you know, with Nacional, you, you, you know what you're going to get. It's it's a solid team, um, lots of willing runners. Um, you know, you've got um, some, some good forwards up front in the likes of uh, Gigliotti still doing it. Ramirez Ocampo is a player I'm, I'm a big fan of. Um, and, you know, th- there is a bit of invention there too with um, uh, the young playmaker Monseglio, who's, who's definitely one to watch, um, someone who's emerged in the last last year or so. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think they'll they'll fancy their chances. You know, they've got the, the Uruguay national team goalkeeper, you know, and some some good young prospects in defence too. So it's it's a solid side with maybe maybe not the most exciting, but certainly one that that will fancy its chances. It's used to having that pressure as being one of the biggest clubs in Uruguay. Um, going in, say a bit more of a um, surprise package, and 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 again maybe not one that most people will be you know, too excited by, if we're brutally honest, um, no huge, you know, stars in that team, really. I mean, Churin has done the, done the rounds of, of many, many clubs in South America, but, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a team that has done very well to get this far. Um, and I think more eyes are going to be on maybe some of the more exciting, exciting ties that are going going on in in this uh, Sudamericana uh, quarterfinals um, certainly Pinnacle has Nacional um, favorites for that first leg in a 2.28 to win whereas going and say 3.54 
zero. Um, so yeah, I would probably lean towards Nacional given their their history and, and presence. But you know, a, a draw wouldn't shock me. And um, yeah, I, I don't think we're necessarily going to see tons of goals. Unless, of course, uh, the Luis Suarez uh, movement picks up and they are <laughs> able to bring him in. Um, Simon, then we'll quickly uh, just finish the Sudamericana with the last of the quarterfinals, the All-Brazilian um, affair. Tom mentioned one of them already as, as potential favourites, Sao Paulo. Um, they knocked out Universidad Católica of Chile. Sierra came through against the strongest, which we know is one of those teams that can always be a little bit tricky, particularly the away leg. Um, but they came through that to set up that Brazilian quarterfinal. But are we looking at, certainly the odds would suggest that there's a firm favourite there to be going through to the semifinals. Yeah, and you can understand why. Look, Sao Paulo have, have a strong team, lots of quality. Uh, they're a huge, huge club in South America. Um, haven't perhaps always performed at their potential level over the last five or six years. You know, In theory, they should be up there with the likes of Flamengo. Um, in terms of the, being the Sao Paulo giant club, uh, I'm sure uh, they'll they'd like to be competing on the Palmeiras level. But a huge club uh, who's done well in this competition, very comfortable progression through to the to the quarterfinals so far with a, with a very good squad. Squad, but I wouldn't rule out Ceará. You know they they did very well as you mentioned. They they scored two late goals away in, in the altitude of uh, of the strongest, which is always a is a good test and a good indicator of a team's, you know, spirit and organization and you know ability to kind of overcome adversity because there isn't much more adversity than playing in the uh, away at altitude in Bolivia. So that's a, a good indicator. Then they turned on the start in the second leg with a comfortable 3-0 win. They got the the Colombian win. I've found a Colombian. I've got to enjoy the Colombian successes where I can. Uh, Steven Mendoza has been their top scorer in the Brazil and uh, kind of a winger, a good player uh, as well. So look, I think... Sao Paulo are understandably favourites, but I think Ceará have the ingredients to potentially give them a give them a tough game. Again, it's Brazilians versus Brazilians. They'll know each other. They'll know where their opportunities lie in terms of this tie. They'll know how to counteract some of the, the threats of the opposition. So I think Ceará will make this one interesting. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if they hit one on the counter a few times. But you know, I think Sao Paulo will be protagonists, as they love to say down here in South America in this tie. Definitely. Yeah, well, again, like Liverpool stories, all of those ties will be in that first week um, of August and the next week, the second legs, when we will then know exactly who will be in the semi-finals of both competitions. We've already mentioned a few transfers from the teams involved in this competition, but it would be remiss of us not to talk about some of the big transfers going on in Europe involving South American players. Um, arguably, the biggest, or certainly in the start of the window, the biggest was as Julian Alvarez finally making the move, even though we knew it was going to happen for, for several weeks or months now. He's now a Manchester City player, training with the team, all raring to go, ready for the new season. Um, Tom, we, we've spoken about Julian Alvarez over the last few months when we're talking about River Plate and, and what he offered them in terms of his goals, in terms of his all-round game. But I guess a lot of people are then looking at the, a very different situation going then to Manchester City team that have been so good in England with an array of, of talents up front, how he fits into that. So that's really the question to you is, is how do Man City get the best from Julian Alvarez? What do you expect to see from him in his first season in the Premier League? Yeah, it's, it's a really, really intriguing one and, and one that I'm going to be paying really close attention to this year. I think in you can read the situation one of two ways, really, because on, on the face of it, the fact that Haaland's come in for Man City as well means that clearly Alvarez is the understudy or maybe someone who can play off Haaland if, if Man City wants to go for for well two up top or some kind of notional um you know front three then th that's going to be really really interesting to see because it means that Alvarez can bed in he might not get the you know the game time he's certainly not going to have the eyes on him like he would would um say if he was the one striker that Man City had brought in so there's there's that aspect and you know you'd like to think that they're going to ease him in on the other hand you could see it as is he going to just sit on the bench is he going to 
his development in terms of game time, especially when you've got the World Cup on the horizon as well. Um, you know, is he going to put his chances of? I mean, I think he'll probably go regardless of where, uh, how much he's playing at Manchester City. But is he going to lose that amazing momentum that he seemed to have at the the start of the year when he was just playing on pure confidence and and everything was coming off for him? You know, a little bit of a roadblock in his in his development, or is he going to take on the you know the amazing tactical work that he's no doubt going to get under Pep at City? I think the the really promising thing f- from from my point of view, is how big a sort of play Man City seemed to have been making in the media in terms of, you know, here's some stories about his him growing up. You know, we really want you to get to know him. Really, you know, lots of posts of him and Haaland together and, and things like that that make you think that, okay, this is a player that really is going to be part of the first team setup and and is not just there to make up the numbers or maybe go out on loan in six months' time. Uh, you know, it really seems like there's a there's a desire there to make him, you know, hopefully the next Oedo. Um Obviously, I think the other aspect of it that's really intriguing as well is that step from the Argentinian league straight into the Premier League is a gulf that's getting bigger every year. And not only that, you're going into the top team the the one that's arguably you know the hardest tactically get you get your head around you know there's plenty of players that go in takes them a year to 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 get get up to speed with what's going on so I think we should really see that situation as not one where we're expecting instant success and as long as you manage your expectations then um, I, I think it's going to be a case that that Alvarez is you know he's the perfect player for a city forward line in terms of his his profile his movement his intelligence um a very modern striker that we've always you know that's one of the things we've always said about him even when he wasn't scoring loads of goals he was the type that you thought yeah this guy looks like he's come from a european academy rather than a south american one um so i, I i'm hopeful that he's going to do well um i think he's got a good you know team around him a good family seems to be very level-headed so everything points to to him being a long-term success even if he's not necessarily going to be coming in and and banging in the goals straight away so yeah that's that's a really interesting one to, to watch and um yeah hopefully he does get some some game time and if he gets an early goal under his belt then that's going to be crucial i think yeah it's going to be very interesting um before we talk about a couple of the other big moves into the premier league then um, staying on River, they obviously lost Julian Alvarez. The other key player for them over the last year has been Enzo Fernandez, and given he was going to stay until the end of the year potentially, but as soon as they went out with the Libertadores, his move to Benfica was done there and then. So he's now a Benfica player. That's really forced River to have to go into the market in quite an aggressive way right at the end, and they've brought in a couple of players, Simon, within the last week or so who have yet to make their debuts. Um, but one of which particularly you'll be very familiar with because they brought in Miguel Borja up front finally after what seemed like weeks and weeks of negotiations when it was off and on again. Uh, the other one being uh, Pablo Solari from Colo Colo. Um, how do you assess those two reinforcements for River? Yeah, look, I think Miguel Borja is a sensible option. It's not the most exciting option, but in terms of a player who consistently performs at the highest level in South American football, Miguel Borja is kind of top of your list in that in that regard. Um, has kind of been solid 7 out of 10 kind of when he was in Brazil. When he's in Colombia, he's always scored. Has done well for the Colombian national team um, when he's played. When Colombia went through that long spell of not scoring, he looked like the most likely to score, um, which, is, which is encouraging. I think he's a player with a lot of confidence. A player who knows his worth, knows what he does well, finds space in the box, He's kind of an energetic, moves about, uh, gets himself into dangerous positions, doesn't mind the physical side of things. So I think he'll give River Plate a very different presence in attack to, to that which they're losing with uh, with Alvarez. Uh, Alvarez, as you say, is very dynamic. Um, while Borja moves, <laughs> he's not he's not dropping deep to pick up the ball, to build the play, to break out wide. He's uh, kind of shifting between the left-sided centre-back and the right-sided centre-back kind of peeling off to the back post, cutting into the near post. It's a lot of movement, but a lot of movement around the penalty box. So, look, 
if it goes well, River Plate will have their 20-plus goal-a-season striker that can potentially, at the very least, help them stay at the high level, kind of have one go-to goal-getter in attack. Um, if it if it doesn't go well, then it's lots of dynamic players and one guy who's looking for the ball in the box and not getting it. Um, but I think I think it makes sense. It's a very sensible kind of low risk. It's it's not it's not going to be cheap by South American standards at all for a guy in his late twenties. But I think it's kind of the obvious option. You've got money. You need an experienced striker. Miguel Borja plays still plays in Colombia, big club in Colombia. But you know you can see it as a very sensible. Uh, safe option for, for River in terms of bringing in a, a striker. Yeah, well, it'll be very interesting to see how River adapt over the coming weeks. Now they're focusing just on the league season in Argentina with those new players. Um, and before we finish, then we will talk about a few of those big signings going into the Premier League. We talked about Man City's new striker, not maybe the main one, but Julian Alvarez. Um, however, for Liverpool, it is is sort of the, the big signing. It's the big marquee signing they made in this window. Darwin Nunez coming in. Um, Tom is someone who you've obviously seen a lot of since even before making a move over to Europe initially. Um, but do you look at him as a guy who's capable of justifying the price tag that Liverpool have paid and can he be the guy that scores the goals that could potentially win them the Premier League title? Well, that's the big question. Um, I mean, I I think that no, no one can really justify a price tag like that and therefore he's he's on a hiding to nothing to be honest i think even if he scores 25 goals people will say okay well he's justified the price tag um anything less or any perceived weaknesses in his game of which you know th- there are some still he's he's still quite raw he's got all the physical attributes that you could want and he certainly knows where the the back of the net is but i just have a feeling that it's going to be one of those signings that is going to be used as a as a kind of stick to, to to beat Liverpool with or to beat him with I think it, it has to go sensationally and then even that is just going to be par like unless he scores 30 plus goals I think people are going to be like okay yeah you know he's he's you know he's that that's par for the course when you're spending that kind of a, a amount of money on a striker so I, I feel like he's he's someone who's got a a lot to do to justify the price tag. And I feel like he might, through no fault of his own, fall a little bit short of expectations. Um, he's he's a player that has, you know, met every challenge that he's faced so far. Um, and you couldn't have asked more of him, really. Um, especially when you, when you see him, you know, his early days for the under-20s in Uruguay and Peñarol. I think there was a lot of scouts who looked at him at that point and and didn't necessarily see what all the fuss was about. He he seemed quite wasteful, a bit of a heavy touch. He's improved so much since then. I never thought he would be uh, the player that he would be now. I would have had a lot of other prospects ahead of him. Um, and he's definitely proven me wrong. And I hope he keeps proving me wrong. But I'm, I'm afraid Liverpool, I, I don't think he's going to be, <laughs> you know, the second coming of Salah. I, I think we're going to see more from, you know, a certain certain Colombian. I think he's going to be the one who really lights things up for Liverpool this season. Yeah, I mean, we, we already saw more than enough from Luis Diaz in the second half of last season to suggest that he's in for a really big season uh, with Liverpool this time round. But he's also been joined by another exciting uh, young Colombian into the league, going to Leeds United, of course, Um so, Simon, uh, what, what can you tell us about that signing? Yeah, so Luis Sinisterra, I, again, I think there's quite a few comparisons to Luis Diaz uh, in terms of the, the role he plays. You know, slightly different players, of course, but in terms of a, a flexible, inverted winger uh, who likes to dribble, likes to score goals, likes to shoot from range, likes to take on defenders, uh, it's, it's about as close as you're going to get to Luis Diaz 2.0 in terms of looking into Colombia. Uh, and yeah, I mean, Sinistera, he moved to Feyenoord a few years ago now, three three years ago. He's still just 23 years old, maybe three or four years ago. Um, his performances in the Eredivisie have improved constantly over that time. Um, was always a, an exciting prospect. Um, but he's kind of, in terms of the Colombian collective consciousness, he's kind of crept up on, on Colombian fans and they're like, oh, Jesus, wow, he's, he's doing this every week now. Uh, and he's a player I think a lot of Colombian fans would have loved to have seen more involved when Colombia couldn't find a goal, 
Uh, look at his numbers in the Eredivisie this year. Even the conference, the conference league, he's got a goal or an assist per ninety. Uh, eighteen games, eighteen goals or assists. Uh, his his form in the league as well is very good. Twelve goals, seven assists this season. So he's been getting better and better um, over the last few years. And as I say, he's a he's a winger. Usually plays on the left, but has previously played on the right as well. Could also play as a second striker. Or I suppose as a nine as a young player as well. But I definitely see him as a player from those wide areas cutting inside. Uh, obviously, with Rafinha going, I think this is a very smart replacement for Rafinha. Um, a player 23 years old, still potential to improve. And he seems to be on a good trajectory in terms of his performances. Uh, obviously, we've seen players come from Holland and, and not have the impact we expected. But I think um, I think with Sinistera, the pace he has, his dribbling ability... He's not quite as kind of lean and agile as, as Luis Diaz. I don't think anyone really is. Um, but what he has is a, a little bit more explosiveness, a little bit more power to him as well. But he's still very, very agile. Go and check out the YouTube highlights and you can get overly excited. But I think, uh, I think he's got enough. And I think the experience he's had in Holland will set him up nicely to have the tactical side of his game combined with those unexpected moments, those goal threats and uh, the ability 1v1 dribbling. So I think he's a good signing for Leeds. Yeah, an exciting one to keep an eye on. Um, and we'll finish then with the, the most recent big, big money move for a South American in the Premier League. And that's, of course, Lisandro Martinez uh, going to Manchester United. Uh, Tom, I mean, when you look at a lot of the press reports in England, it seems to be focusing on the fact that Lisandro Martinez is not particularly tall uh, and, and not a lot else. Uh, but I think for those of us who have watched him from his days in Argentina, particularly coming through regular first team minutes of defence who's this year it's maybe more expected we, we've seen him be able to cope with the fact that he's not particularly tall and know that he's a very very good defender who's very good on the ball um, and it's not that much of a surprise to see him excel first with Ajax and then for his former manager at Ajax to, to want to bring him to Manchester United so again really we're, we're talking about a big price tag so similar to the question that I asked you really about Darwin Nunez, do you look at that one as, as one which is, is difficult to justify the price tag? Or do you think we're looking at a really elite level defender who therefore is worth every penny? Yeah, it's going to be a big test for him to prove he's, he's capable of stepping up to that elite, elite level. I think, you know, it's, it's incredible to think that in a, just a few years, you've now got two Argentinian centre-backs who are going for you know, huge figures when we were bemoaning how few options there are now. You know, you look at Cuti Romero and Lisandro, surely the future of the Argentinian defence going forward, playing at really big clubs. Um, you know, certainly Romero's had that betting in period and is now impressing. I think the fact that he's going to um, a manager that knows him is going to be really, really crucial. And to be honest, the whole height thing, I think there's, you know, a lot being said about, you know, there's this stereotypical image of people swinging the ball into the box in the Premier League when, when I think really you probably get more of that in, in the Netherlands than, than you do in, in the Premier League if you look at the stats. Um, and also if you've got someone with a big slab head next to you who can do all the heading, then you know what's there to worry about really? So I think his versatility, his presence on the ball, that's something that the United defence is has struggled with really in terms of their composure and, and the fact that he can play in all kinds of different roles. I think it's a really smart signing. I don't think he's necessarily going to be, um, you know, the answer to Man United's defensive problems. So, you know, just for balance here, Man United, Liverpool fans, um, you know, I'm, I'm criticizing you in, in equal measure here. So, um, you know, no, no bias here, just, um, cold hard facts um, but um, no I, I, I'm really intrigued to see w- what this will do more so for his his national team chances um, that's probably where I'm coming at, at it from is it's just to see if now that he's playing for one of the biggest clubs in the world whether that's going to be the, the the tipping point for him to be like right okay after the World Cup perhaps Otamendi your your time has come and gone and, and Martinez is going to be the guy that we we build a partnership with Cuti Romero. So that's really interesting. And um, yeah, as much as Ten Hag's getting criticism for just getting a job for all the old Ajax boys, I, I think it is a smart signing and, and hopefully United are able to 
instead of spending 50 million pounds on a defender every every year then this is one that can actually you know really bed in and and, and provide a platform going forward as, as, as they finally seem to you know be getting things in order yeah i mean i, I completely agree i think it's a really smart move and, and one which should come with with fewer surprises than most given the manager i mean you can talk about the lack of height and his apparent vulnerability there but ten hag has seen that up close and knows exactly what he's getting so for me, it's it's not as much of an issue, certainly, as, as being made in the, the English media. But there we go. We'll wait and see how it turns out, um, along with all those other transfers that we discussed. Um, but we've crept over the hour mark, so it's probably best that we wrap things up there. Uh, Simon, as ever, thank you very much. No, thank you. Enjoyed it. And Tom, as well, thanks for your input. Cheers, mate. Thanks. All right. Well, be sure to uh, join us next month when we'll be looking back on those Liverpool Stories uh, quarterfinals, looking ahead to the semis. Um, you can find all the latest odds and betting insight on Pinnacle.com, plus plenty of content on the Pinnacle Twitter and Pinnacle.betting on Instagram, with plenty of other sports as well, not just the football. Uh, please gamble responsibly. Any odds that we mentioned during the episode were correct at the time of recording, but go to Pinnacle.com to get the latest. Thanks.